Uh, my name is Eugene. I get to lead this wonderful church. And we are in a sermon series called One Story. And we're going through the whole Bible, showing how it, from Genesis to Revelation, it points us to Jesus. Uh, this is part five. First four sermons were in the Old Testament. And today we're finally going to switch gears and get into the New Testament. And I showed you this graphic almost every Sunday, and this is the big picture of creation. This is everything life is about. God creates the world. There's sin in the world. God then miraculously drives history to the cross, Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about today. And then it's the era of the church, which is our era when we get to share in the blessing of salvation. And ultimately, everything ends with Jesus coming after his bride. Uh, the New Testament has 27 books. Uh, yes, so 27 books. And today we're going to look at the first four books of the New Testament called the gospel. The gospels. Now, it's not the gospel of Matthew. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew. It's not the gospel of John. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. It's one gospel, four different accounts. And the word I want to give you is that these gospels are a manifestation of Jesus. Manifest means to make public. Jesus has come. Now, all these four sermons, I've been talking to you with one thing. I said, and Pastor Pete said, the Bible points to Jesus. 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 The Bible is about Jesus. But today, we're going to ask the question, what is Jesus about? So every sermon, we've been talking about how the Bible is about Jesus. But today, and starting with this week and for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what is Jesus really about. Now, let me ask you this. If you have to choose a passage in the Bible to represent, or a passage from the Gospels, to represent what Jesus did, you're an intelligent audience. What would you choose? Like, what, what, what story would you choose to highlight sort of the bigger story of what Jesus has accomplished? Now, there's no wrong answer. Uh, but this, the story I decided to choose, went on and I prayed about this, is the story of the wedding at Cana. I think this story is so beautiful because it highlights what Jesus ultimately achieves for us. It's the gospel in this story. So from the gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, let me read this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. She also, Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, Everyone 
serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let me pray. God, in this story, your glory is on display. And I pray that right now you would give me the ability and you would speak through me to highlight this glory for us to see that we may too believe and grow in our faith. In your name I pray, amen. Jesus is about joy. Jesus is joy. I don't think a lot of people believe this. I don't think a lot of people maybe even really uh, agree with this. A lot of people out there in the world would say that Christianity is anything but joy. I mean, Christianity is where dreams go to die. Pleasures go to die. Fun goes to die. Desires go to die. I mean, Christianity is anything but joy. I think maybe the reason they think so is because we, uh, as followers of Jesus, don't always have or live a compelling life of joy. But oftentimes, it's simply a, a misunderstanding. But what about in the church? Do you believe that Jesus is joy, has come to bring joy, has come to give you joy? Has walking with Jesus been more of a discipline than a delight. Uh, it's not really a delight, Eugene, but it, but it is a discipline. It's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of will. It's a lot of just kind of, you know, coming to church, getting people, you know, having the sermon guy, like, preach you down, and then you have to, like, go work on things. And, like, it's not, that's about it. Like, not the delight part. Or maybe you might say, yeah, 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 Jesus is joy. Jesus does bring joy. But he brings the kind of joy that's different from the joys of life, you know? Like, it's different, which is true, but it's of a lesser quality. I mean, the joy that Jesus brings is not like the joy of experiences that we experience. The hobbies we have, surfing and snowboarding, that's joy. It's not like the experience of achieving something, maybe like running a marathon or Ironman, that's joy. Or, or the love of relationships and bonfire and and. Uh, s'mores and, and coffee. I mean, that's joy. But, but the, you know, the kind of joy that we talk about at church, that's a different kind. It's a, it's a lesser kind. Think about what kind of joy we usually talk about Jesus having. Well, it's usually in heaven. Like, that's when you really get to experience the joy. And then what kind of joy is in heaven? Not very cool. You get signed up for the orchestra. And in heaven, you get a harp and you get a robe. <laughs> And some wings, like, why the wings? And then you play in the orchestra, like, that's heaven. That's not very appealing. But I have news for you today, that Jesus is a giver, a bringer, and what he's about is ultimately joy, your joy, and his glory. I'm going to show you this in this passage. Uh, There's four scenes or four parts to this. And I'm just going to step right here, take a glance at the time. All right. 
First thing I want to show you, and the story demonstrates for us, is how we are to read this story. So there's four parts, but how we are to read this story. There are two big clues in this story how we are to read it. Notice in verse 11, this miracle of turning water into wine is called a sign, not a miracle. John calls them signs. And we today know very well what signs mean, better than any, at any point humanity ever understood. When you, do, when you are driving to Mount Rainier in July, and you see a sign that says, Mount Rainier National Park, a sign, what do you do? Well, you don't park next to it, take out the picnic and enjoy, take a picture of, you know, I'm here. No, the sign tells you one thing. It says, you are on the right path, but keep on going. The destination is past me. This destination awaits you. And so when Jesus would do a miracle, it's a sign, which means we've got something here, but keep on going. Like there's some, a destination behind this. There's more to the story than appears. It's a sign. At the surface, this is a story of how Jesus really spared embarrassment and social shame to the bridegroom. Uh, Jesus, on the surface, this is a story about how Jesus basically is a good guy. When the bridegroom messed up on a bad day, Jesus does the wine thing, and wow, 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 amazing. That's on the surface. But this is a sign that points to something far, more, far greater. And the second clue we get to this greater is Jesus uses this word in verse um, 6. Excuse me, in verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. So Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, um, there you have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, what is that to me? My hour has not come. Now, what does that word mean, my hour has not come? Circle that if you're, taking, if you're studying your Bible, because hour in the Gospel of John is a very specific thing. It's not speaking that my time is not up to do this miracle, Jesus is speaking, and every time we read the word hour in the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking of his passion, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and ascension to the Father. In other words, you guys, we are invited into a deeper meaning here. We're talking about wine, and Jesus is talking about his suffering? We're talking about not there being not enough wine, and Jesus is inviting us into something deeper, talking about suffering, what's going on. So let me give you the four parts to this story, and we're going to land at how Jesus is our joy. The first thing that we see is the lack of wine represents the emptiness and brokenness of our condition. Something's wrong. Something's off. We've run out of wine. This story is a great illustration uh, displaying what the end result is of all of our efforts, all of our planning, all of our doing, all the things that you and I think we can figure out and do. The end result of all of our doing, all of our striving, all of our planning, like the bridegroom was planning, is the result is empty, dry, joyless. Isn't that true? Isn't that how life goes? 
when we are left to our own efforts, our own conditions, our own doing, the best we can come up with is we've run out. We've run out of joy. We're broken. Think about the brokenness of humanity. Our relationship with God outside of Jesus is broken. There is no honor for God. Our relationship with others, broken. There's lying, cheating, gossip, slander. It's hard to get along with people. I don't know if you noticed. Outside of Jesus, our relationship to things are broken. You know what I've noticed? Tell me if this is true or not. Well, just don't tell me, but think this through. Isn't it true how it's hard to have a good relationship with things out there without idolizing them or neglecting them? I was thinking about health. It's really hard to get the balance right. You either idolize health and you count every almond and every gram and every, you know, you put like, you know how you go all out on a diet. Or then you just seesaw back to just total neglect, potato chip, you know, sugar, 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 sugar. But you know what? It's hard to get it right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to get money right. Most people are either idolizing money, it's, it's God for them, or they're completely free from money, like just spending wherever they want. But you know what? It's hard to get it right. It's hard to get job right. You can idolize your job. Or you can just treat your job as a nine-to-five, check-in, clock out, get my paycheck, and nothing more. When God has called us to this thing called stewarding, which is to treat whatever he's given us well. But that all set is said to show you that, man, we're, we're empty. We're running on empty. And what are we going to do about it? We got to do what Mary did. She turns to Jesus. Get that, okay? No more wine, spiritual condition of Israel, spiritual condition of our lives, empty, joyless, fallen, sinful, wrong, in the wrong. What do we do? Let's do what Mary did. She turns to Jesus because Jesus is the answer. I love that Mary, listen, this is a bigger point of application. I love that Mary goes to Jesus. And I wonder why. Did you ever think about like, there's other people there, there's disciples, not sure if everyone knew that there was no more wine, but at least some other people knew there was Jesus and there was no more wine. Why is it Mary who goes to ask Jesus, tell Jesus that there's no more wine? I believe the answer is she knew Jesus that way. She knew Jesus as someone you can come with, not just the big requests, but the medium and the small. She knew that you can come to Jesus with any request. This wasn't a tragedy necessarily, but she knew that, gee, I think I'm going to take this to Jesus. My question to you is, are you coming to Jesus with your requests? Or only the big stuff? You know, when the big stuff happens, that's automatic. We run to Christ all the time. What about the medium stuff? What about the small stuff? Do you take stuff that you have already figured out to Jesus? You bring the requests of your normal problems that require normal solutions that come from you to Jesus. Or are you or me too sophisticated, too scientific? I know how this works for Jesus. I love that she brings her request to Jesus. But I want you to also notice something that happens when she brings the request to Jesus 
and lays it at his feet, the next thing she says to his, to his disciples, to the servants, excuse me, is do whatever he tells you, which is a humongous principle for us. And it's this. Bring all your requests to Jesus and then obey regardless. Get that? Bring all your requests to Jesus and then obey regardless. How often do we fall into a trap of having our obedience be predicated on how God and the flow of his blessings my way and how that's going? I love how she says, you know, Jesus, there's no more wine and servants. Do whatever he tells you. I love that absolute surrender to Christ, which is a great example of how we are to live our lives, bringing all of our requests to Jesus. God, I I need healing for my body. But God, my obedience, I will obey regardless. God, I, I would love, I would love a promotion at work. But I'm gonna obey regardless. God, I I would love to be married, but I'm going to obey regardless. So she brings all her requests to Jesus. So the first one, the first point we see is that there is emptiness. The second thing that we need to see here is that Jesus is the obedient son. That's the second point. Very important. (laughs) Okay. Going to verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman. Now, let's talk about that one, because that, that triggers people. Like, what? My Jesus says that? How many of you are like, listen, if I said woman to my mom, I would not live to see another day. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? Woman. Um, so a couple things. But the main one is, uh, Jesus, first of all, this is a, a very respectful title. It's not the way we read it because we, we have our culture as a lens by which we read woman. We read it that way. There's a different lens. It's a respectful title. But Jesus is doing something so important. Commentators and scholars have pointed out, by saying woman at this juncture of his ministry, Jesus is putting proper distance between him and his earthly mother to establish his ultimate loyalty to God the Father. In in a way, Jesus is saying, here on out, I am here to do the Father's will. I am here to obey the Father in every way. And the Bible makes a big case, a sense, or emphasizes the obedience of Jesus. Because here's the remarkable thing. Jesus, every moment of his life, obeyed the Father. There was never a moment in his life where he was outside the will of the Father. That's incredible. He obeyed the Father, his will, and all the things that God would have him do, and all the things that he could have done, that should have done. Jesus obeyed the Father. And I know what you might be thinking. Well, Eugene, Jesus is God. And, and sometimes when we say Jesus is God, what we mean is, that's not impressive. That's what he does. He's holy. He's righteous. It's almost like there's no amazing thing here. Jesus is God. And yet, Scripture highlights his obedience as a monumental, triumphant achievement, which means that it's our praise too. 
It's our celebration as well. And by the way, let me just say this. It, just because Jesus is God does not mean Jesus is ever less human. He experiences all of our trials, all of our temptations. He was exhausted. He wept. And yet Jesus obeyed 100% of the time, all of the things. And let me tell you why obedience of Jesus is so important. Because his obedience is a necessary requirement of the sacrifice on the cross being accepted. If Jesus had slipped, if there was a stain on his conscience, even a small one, when he died on the cross, the punishment he received would have been his. In other words, his obedience establishes his substitution. The reason you know, the reason you know, mercy, that Jesus died for you is because when he died, he had no debt of his own to pay. So when he paid, and when he paid, and he paid, and the time came to pay, he was paying your sins and not his. Oh, he is the obedient son. Can we say amen to that? Wink at me, smile at me, be like, yes, yes, that's who Jesus is. He's, he's the obedient son. And then it says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Mary says, do as the servants, tell, servants do as he tells you. And then Jesus points to the six jars that are reserved for purification. Oh, this is so good. Um, here, here's what Jesus is doing. And he makes, he asks the servants to fill up the, uh, the jars with water. He turns the water into wine. Now, those jars of water were used for purification, for cleansing, to be clean. If you touch something, a dead thing, or, or you got in the way, I don't know what all the laws are, right? Sort of skip those <laughs> in the Old Testament. But if you, you got unclean in any way, these purification rites allowed you to get clean. But what's amazing is that Jesus uses those jars, those same jars for his wine miracle. He could have used... Jars that were empty somewhere hanging out, hanging out at the, at the party that didn't have wine anymore. No, he uses those. Why? Jesus is saying the old way of getting clean is now replaced with a new way of getting clean. The old way that you used to get clean is now being replaced by me one day dying on the cross and one day that he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus is saying there's a new way to deal with your guilt. A sure way, a better way, the right way. There's a new way to clean up your sins. There's a better way, and that way is through my blood. I love that our background is red. <laughs> I love that our songs sing about the blood because it's signifying the church today, you and I can and are, for anyone who claims Jesus' name, to be forgiven. You're forgiven. Um, I love the quantity and the quality of this wine. <laughs> Jesus uses six jars, maybe 180 gallons. Now, a gallon of milk in your fridge, that's just one gallon. This is 180. Some commentators looked at this and said, oh, this is such a big number. It's probably an exaggeration. I don't think it is. 
That's what Jesus does. He makes so much wine that it's just ridiculous, like so much. And get this, it's not just the quantity, it's also the quality. It's good. It's really, really good. It's better than the bridegroom's best wine. You know what that shows me? Let me just tell you real quick that God doesn't have to make a trade-off between quantity and quality the way we do. See, God can love everybody and love you uniquely and specially. God's love does not suffer because he loves everybody. God's love for you does not suffer, doesn't lessen because he loves everybody. God's leading of your life is not less because he's leading so many people. No, no, no. God can do quantity and quality at the same time. The things God did in Terrace's life is something God's doing in your life because he doesn't make changes between quality and quality. That's our thing. That's what we see out in the marketplace, quantity or quality. No. But here's the biggest point. The quantity refers to the fact that everyone's sins are forgiven. And the quality refers to the fact that all of your sins are thoroughly and perfectly forgiven. He made this into wine. I want you to know, Mercy, that you are forgiven. Anyone who proclaims the name of Jesus, believes in him, is forgiven. Sometimes we deal with consequences of our sins. And those delay, and those come at us, and there are consequences for bad decisions. That's just normal life. But never allow for the fact that there's consequences of your past actions to discourage you from an incredibly even more important event, a sure forgiveness for you. You may be forgiven today and still having to live with some consequences. That's, I'm sorry, but you're forgiven. Always, just because there's consequences to stuff you did in the past does not mean you are not forgiven. You're fully and totally forgiven. And the fourth thing Jesus does is this story illustrates, and commentators have pointed this out. This story is about something far more. So here's what Jesus does. He obeys the Father. He dies on the cross for our sins. And then what? Here's what. Here's the what. He obeys the Father. He dies for our sins just so we could be forgiven, have some goosebumps at church. What, what's, what's, what's then? Okay. He, he obeys the Father. He dies for our sins. And then wedding. That's it. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He, in fact, because look, the, it was the bridegroom's duty to make all the provisions for wine and food for the guests. And Jesus steps into that role, signifying that I, I am the perfect bridegroom, and I am going to get my bride ready for the wedding day. I want to show you in Revelation, we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but in Revelation 19, this is where and this is what it's all about, is the wedding day. And the wedding day is between Jesus and the church, the bride. And here's how it all ends. In Revelation 19, John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb 
has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's it. In John, uh, Revelation 21, further, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, church, this is it. This is where it ends, or it begins. <laughs> God's dwelling place is now among the people. There's no more faith needed. God is there. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who has, was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Church, my whole hope here is that you would see that what God has in store for you is joy. Joy in a relationship with him. That's what Jesus came for. That's how he's glorified, is when you find joy in him. There's a whole lot of joy stored up for you because that's what it's about. It's joy. Weddings are occasions for incredible celebration. They're for smiles. They're for tears, happy tears. That's what weddings are for. And Jesus at this wedding, the very first miracle Jesus ever did is saying to all of us to come, I'm getting ready for the wedding day. I'm going to provide the wine, the blood, the suffering of my life to get you there. So I can be your God, you can be my people. So there will be no more pain, there will be no more tears, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more death. Quick points of application. You might say, well, Eugene, that's still future joy. <laughs> that's still joy to come in the future. Yes. Here's what I want you to know. That there is, that one day there will be no more tears. That one day there will be no more death. That one day there will be no more mourning. But joy of Christ is for today as well. It is present joy. It's for your now. I can't promise you a lot of things here. Uh, there is, some people promise, not really anymore, health and wealth, you know, make Jesus your Lord and you'll drive a Rolls Royce kind of thing. And that's, that's not something I can promise you. But I can promise you that Jesus can and wants to be your joy. And it's not just a future joy, which will be unimaginable and incomparable, but he can be your joy today. Second thing I want to show you is that Jesus offers greater joy. Sometimes while we think Sometimes we think that all there is in life is the joys of this life. And Jesus is that different kind, a lesser joy. I love how when this 
what essentially his bridegroom was doing was giving the best wine, what he thought was best, what the MC thought was best. Maybe you find yourself today thinking that these things that I have planned for and things I've figured out in life, they're the sources of my best joy. And Jesus today wants to, for you to know, but I've got better wine for you. I've got even greater joy. That the joys that we have in this life are meant to tell us something about an even greater joy, the joy of Christ. Jesus offers us unfading joy today. I realize in my life that oftentimes my joy runs on a lot of things. That is, I get my joy from my family, which is good. I get my joy from my health. Some get their joy from their income. Some get their joy from their plans and dreams. Some get their joy from their possessions. But you know what? One tragedy and all your joy is going to dry up. One phone call from the doctor says you have something in your body and all those sources of joy that you had dry up. Your boss can send you an email that says we have to lay you off and the economy is getting kind of hard right now. I don't want to freak you out, but... And your joy dries up. But how about we fight for unfading joy? The joy that Jesus has. Jesus promises. Jesus has won over for us. The joy that's found in him and in our relationship with him. And last, it is joy that is satisfying. See, every joy you know that's on this side of eternity that's not in Christ, somewhat incomplete. I was, went hiking once to mail, uh, excuse me, it's called Mailbox Peak. It's a mountain somewhere on I-90. Back then, I was in shape. It was my heyday. I used to love hiking. And uh, I went with Albina. Had to carry her half the mountain. I'm teasing. But when we were hiking up this mountain, she's still traumatized by it. We went on that shorter detour. I'm like, this is quicker. It's two miles. But it's just like this, you know. So we're climbing, climbing, climbing. And I used to tell her, like, babe, you see that, that opening, that clearing? That's, that's done. That's done. That, that's where the, it ends. And we'll climb up, and there will be another hill. I say, sweetie, I, I promise. Now, she says I was lying. I think it was strategic encouragement. I was sort of right. It's coming. So I would say, keep on going. Let's go. It's, it's right there. And then we come. And, but I think that's how our pursuits of earthly joys are. It's never what we think it is. And it, when it is what we think it is, it fades and it doesn't satisfy. But there is a joy of Christ that is satisfying now let me end with this how do we get this joy I want to say this that life's a journey of discovering the joy of Christ it's not easy a lot of people our Christians are turned off by this joy because they say well I, Eugene I prayed I read my Bible I'm not joyful I don't know this joy. I don't know this joy to be unfading. I don't know this joy to be satisfying. I don't know this joy to be present in my here and now. I don't know that. Because here's the thing you need to know. Is this not necessarily automatic? I was thinking, last illustration I'll give you. 
how there's a difference between a machine operator and a gardener. See, a machine operator, he has near absolute control of everything that happens in the machine. Like, think about you as a user of your phone. You press instant feedback. You turn it off. You do whatever you want. You, 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 it's on, off. It works. It doesn't work. It's instant. But think about a gardener. He has so little control. Except he can control a few conditions here and there. And it's a process of whatever happens. He plants a seed and he waters it. He tills the soil. He fertilizes it. But then that's about it. There's not much more he can do. Can I tell you something? That the joy of Christ is not something necessarily we get to control. It's something that we get to cultivate. It's something that we can choose right now to say, you know what? I'm all in on this joy. And I can... I can read my, my word by his grace. I can pray. I can find community. I can make a decision today to have habits of life that are conducive to the joy of Christ in my life, not opposite, not warring against the joy of Christ in my life. See, you don't, it's, you know, we, we, I come from a background where we had altar calls. And altar call means you just come to the front of the church. And we think it's automatic and it's instant. And you prayed, and guess what? You prayed, and God touched you, and that's awesome, and maybe one day we'll have that here. But you go back, and you still have your habits. You still have your problems. What I'm really trying to get at is are you willing to fight to have this joy in your life? Are you willing to battle for it? Are you willing to train your mind to believe that this is true, that Jesus is the one who has the best joy for me, and I won't get distracted by anything else? I'm after it. I'm for it. I'll choose the habits in my life by God's grace, by his spirit, that will help me discover this joy. If today you're saying this joy doesn't work, if I'm saying this joy doesn't work, I don't know what I'm talking about. His joy is unfading satisfying, present, greater than anything else, and this joy is for you today of true peace, true wholeness, despite the sufferings in your life, despite the drawbacks, despite all the things that are happening in your life. My only question to you is, are you going to believe that? Are you going to choose to pursue it? Will your life be characterized by a pursuit of this incredible wine, this joy that Jesus offered? Let me pray with you. Jesus, you are our God. You are the obedient son. You came to suffer for our sins and your death on the cross was not yours because you were obedient. Your death on the cross was mine, was Mercy Church's, was everyone who calls on your name. And I thank you. But God, things don't stop there. You call us into joy because that's what you're about. You have planned for us an end of earth and beginning of heaven celebration. But Lord, that joy is not just for the future. It's for the present. It's for the here. So I pray that you would help us in our lives seek after this. 
to grab hold of it and go after it. However long it takes, whatever the journey may look like, help us pursue this joy. Help me as the pastor of mercy pursue this joy. Help us not get caught up by other joys, God. They only end us up in emptiness. To you be the glory. To you be the honor. In your name I pray, amen.